So with that in mind, let's uh, bow together. Father, thank you so much for this time we have, and I pray as we look into your word, you would grant us wisdom and insight into what you intended and that we would respond as you desire. Lord, bless your word as it goes out. pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are all kinds of different ways that churches worship these days. Uh, all kinds of different worship services. Uh, if you go to uh, 10 churches, you'll probably find, you know, 10 different ways that worship is done. And as we gather together as his church, his body, it is incumbent upon us to understand from his word how we should come together and worship him. Uh, there are certainly areas that might uh, be areas of preference, but I, I really believe that those fall by the wayside when God's word is actually at the core of how we worship him. And so we want to continue our look at how we are to worship the living God. We're in the book of Nehemiah, and we are seeing towards the end of this book how we are to worship corporately. And we're gaining this insight from this grand worship service and celebration and dedication of the walls. Uh, so would you turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44, and we're going to go on to chapter 13, verse 3. Now we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah. The first six chapters of the book have been focused on the physical rebuilding of the walls in the cont of Jerusalem and the gates that were burnt down in the context of the opposition that Satan brought forth through men and how by God's power and grace and, uh, and, and strength, uh, these Jews with Nehemiah uh, leading them rebuilt the wall in 52 days. And then we came to the portion where we saw that the, that the, that the city was, was uh, not, Jerusalem was not inhabited with very many people. There were very few houses, and now it was ready to be inhabited. But Nehemiah moves at that point not to talk about uh, those who would come and inhabit it, which he will in chapter 11, but he moves to share what these people needed to have happen first. They needed the spiritual walls and gates of their life rebuilt. And we saw in chapter 8, and we'll review a little bit of that today, how they desired to hear the word of God. They, they called for Ezra to read it, and they had the right heart, and the Levites taught them, and they responded to the word of God. And we saw in those chapters uh, that they repented, that they repented certainly as the leaders, but also the people repented. And they repented and realized that the reason why they were in the situation they were in, having been having left uh, exile now back in Jerusalem, but yet under the Persians as their slaves, in a sense, that it was their fault and their father's fault. They rejected the Lord. They had not walked in his ways. And they made a commitment to walk in his word. And then they committed to address the areas in which they had failed specifically. And they did so. And they, 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 they committed to relate rightly to the Canaanites, the unsaved. They were committed to trust the Lord in their work rather than to do business during the times the Lord would say they need to rest. They need to obey him. Uh, they were committed uh, to not forsake the house of the Lord. And we'll see part of that today. Uh, to take care of those who are serving in the worship of the living God. And they were also committed to give the first fruits of their uh, 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 what they receive and then serve the Lord. They're committed to do so. 
And then we saw within that they were desiring to then volunteer to inhabit Jerusalem. And there were those who did, and everyone who did praised God for those who had uh, volunteered to, to leave and live in Jerusalem to serve him. And so we've been looking now in chapter 12 uh, on this great dedication at principles of corporate worship, and we're coming towards the end. And so as I read through, I'm not going to read every part of what we've reviewed before up to our passage. Um, I'm going to go little bits and pieces of the verses. We can go back to those messages and look at those and read those lists of names if you like. You can see all that, but we are going to look verse by verse through our passage today, but in our review, we're going to hit specific verses coming up to that point, so just uh, be aware of that. So again, turn to Nehemiah chapter 12, and we're going to start with verse 44. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them in, to gather into them from the fields of the cities of the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification, purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. And so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should, should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, we're going to see that up to verse 3, this is the last section of this time of this dedication. This is where it ends. This is where the on that day portions end. And then in the end of chapter 13 and on, the rest of the rest of uh, uh, Nehemiah, we're going to see some looking back and then some looking ahead and addressing some issues that arose as we finish the book of Nehemiah. But you might remember that this day that we're speaking of, that we're talking about, this was for the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Look back at verse 27. Now, and this is chapter 12, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. This was a time, it was a dedication, it was a consecration, it was a, a setting apart of the wall to the Lord. It was a visible a ceremony, in a sense, of worship to say, Lord God, you brought this about, and we're praising you for what you've done, and we're, this is your wall, and we're entrusting it to you. We're dedicating it to you. It is yours. And so we see that here. So the dedication of the wall, we have this celebration. Notice it says in there, verse 27, they sought out the Levites and from from uh, all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. 
at the core of what we're going to see today in our review and in our passage is that this is a tremendous worship service. It is a worship service, and from this we can gain so much insight about how we are to worship the Lord. Indeed, we see the Levites here with, with special skills and music and song. They were sought from their places to come to Jerusalem. They might celebrate the dedication with gladness. Don't forget that. We come to, to worship the Lord with a right joyful heart. We don't come with frowns and, and thinking about all the, the terrible things. We think about our great God who has brought about salvation for us and is taking us all the way to glory. We think about that and we come with gladness for what he's done, for what he's done for us in this, in this temporal world and what he's done for us eternally. And so we see that here. Uh, they, they sought them out and, and so it was with gladness to celebrate the dedication. And we see that with hymns of thanksgiving and songs of accompaniment with cymbals and harps, this passage is about, uh, worship. Uh, indeed, we see from verses 31 and on, we have two great choirs as we'll look at in a moment. And circling all, that's those who are singing hymns of praise. We have uh, hymns of thanksgiving mentioned. Well, we have singing mentioned eight times. We have uh, hymns of thanksgiving mentioned twice. We have songs of praise. We have musical instruments mentioned five times in our passage. And we have rejoicing and joy in that context mentioned six times. It is about... Uh, the praise and worship of our great God, and this is done primarily here we see in song, but there's also, as we will see, there is dedication, there's offerings, there's, there is a service, uh, uh, there is the word proclaimed. So then, we see this dedicational wall, it is encompassed, it is surrounded by worship, it's immersed in it. And we came and we began to understand some principles, and you'll see them on your outline, the ones I'm going to briefly review them, I'm not going to read all those verses, I'm going to read little pieces of those verses, and then we get to our last two points today, we'll go through those verse by verse and see those last two points. So if you think, oh, I'm missing something in those earlier points, you can go back to those, those passages because we teach through those completely, okay? So the first thing we saw through here was the worship service was planned. It was planned. Uh, verses 27 to 29, they sought servants. Uh, they sought the Levites, the singers, to celebrate with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, accompanied with song and assembled. And then we saw the servants and people in the place were to be pure. It was planned. There was to be purity, that we should be pure in the Lord when we come to worship. Now we have the uh, purification here we see in verse 30. It says, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates and the wall. Now this speaks of ceremonial purification. They would use water as a ceremony in that. But it indicates there needs to be purity. And that purity always pointed to the reality of what Christ would do for us, cleansing us through his blood. And so we need to be pure. You see that picture in the Old Testament of being pure before the Lord, his people, right? And we need to be pure when we come to worship him. We need to remember that we should never come together and have sin in our lives. Yes, we do sin. If we say we don't sin, we're liars. But we should be those who are the confessors of sin. We are continually, habitually confessing our sin. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can come with pure lips and a cleansed heart, and you are to come with pure lips and a cleansed heart. Don't ever come here with sin in your life. Uh, confess it. Be forgiven. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you can be cleansed today of all your sin by trusting in Jesus Christ who died 
for your sins. So we see this principle. We need to be pure. Don't ever come to practice for worship or worship with having issues with somebody or whatever it might be. Uh, resolve that. Lay your gift down at the altar. Go make it right. Make it right with the Lord first. Be pure. Be pure when we come together. We see it's a very, very important principle. And then we saw that the worship is to be organized. It's not a shotgun approach to worship where we all come and say, who wants to do what? Who has a trumpet? Go for it. You know, whatever it is, there is organization to it. We saw in the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, the Apostle Paul summarizes after all his teaching of how they're out of order. He summarizes, let everything be done in an orderly fashion. That's what we should be doing. And that's how we should be doing it. And so here we saw then, verse 31, then I had the leaders of Judah come up to the top of the wall and I appointed two great choirs. He had the leaders, he had the choirs, uh, he appointed a great choir, and that takes organization. It takes organization. And a choir here, that word we saw in the Hebrew, actually spoke of that which is giving thanksgiving or praise and song. Two great thanksgiving and praise and song groups, Right? You know, when you think of that word choir for us, we think, oh, choir for church. Oh, there might be a choir at the high school. Well, it's not a real choir at the high school if they're not singing praise and thankfulness to God. That's where this choir word comes from for us and its basis. We're singing praise to the Lord. And so here we have these two large Thanksgiving choirs. Not Thanksgiving Day, but Thanksgiving choirs, right? Praising the Lord. And it takes organization to do so, and he also had the leaders all organized, and we see he also had uh, Ezra leading one of them, the, the the one who represents the word of God in teaching, right, leading them. And so we see that, and then they came around, verses 31 to 39. Uh, they came around from the bottom of the of the coming up around the the walls. They came around to the top, and they all met. Uh, they all met in the uh, temple. And they began to praise. And that gives our next point, knowing our service should be organized. Our next point, we saw that the worship service should be immersed in glorifying music and singing. It should be immersed in it. should be immersed in it. Notice what happens when they all come around and they all get to the, uh, this procession of choirs and they get there and they get to the, to, the, to the actual house of God. It says in verse 40, Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. And we see uh, uh, also in the middle of verse 40, So I did, and half of the officials with me. And then the end of verse 42, And the singers sang. And the singers sang. Isn't that great? The singers sang. The singers sang, uh, in the context here, the singers sang, uh, with Jerahiah, their leader. The singer sang. They had a song leader there, as we see. And we know uh, that we saw earlier throughout this book, and I mentioned earlier that there should be immersed in, in the music, immersed in songs of praise. We saw in chapter 12, verse 8, that the Levites, uh, in, when the first group that had come with Joshua uh, and, and with Zerubbabel, that they were in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, chapter 12, verse 8. There were people in charge of that. And then the middle of verse 24 in chapter 12, there were, the Levites were to praise and give thanks as prescribed by David, the man of God. And we have in uh, the middle of 27 uh, that the Levites were sought that, so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs of an accompaniment, and cymbals and harp, harps and lyres. Those are instruments 
hymns of thanksgiving. And we saw that David was the one. Later on, we saw that David, they did it according to the instruments that David had prescribed. There were certain instruments that he had prescribed in the context of worship. And so then, our worship should be immersed in thanksgiving and praise to God. Not music that's all about us. You can enjoy, you know, Christian music that, you know, talks about how much you enjoy your salvation. Praise the Lord. But when we come together, we're talking about Him. We're singing to Him. And it should be hymns and, and songs of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. You know, when we have our own little song, Christian songs, uh, they're usually not songs of thanksgiving. They're songs of what He's done. We just kind of like it, right? But here we should be praising him and thanking him for what he has done. Our worship service should be filled with thanksgiving to the Lord and praise in song with those who are skilled, skilled in song, those who are skilled uh, with music, but yet those who trust the Lord. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You know, I hear of churches that hire professional people to come in and play instruments that don't know the Lord. What are you talking about? Don't do that. These should be believers who are skilled. God gives different skills and have committed that to the Lord. They're depending on Christ. They've given those skills over to him. They're relying on Jesus, and that's when God is glorified. And then we saw our next point, that the worship service must be focused on Christ and his sacrifice. Remember what we saw in verse 43, and on that day. Now we had the beginning of these on that day statements. We'll see in our passage starts 44 starts with on that day. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, it starts with on that day. Nehemiah wants to make it clear this is not another time. This is all happening on that day of this great dedication. It's all happening during this time of dedication. And on that day, verse 43, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Again, on that day, the day in which they were celebrating uh, and praising God for the walls of Jerusalem that he had brought forth. It was on that day with hymns of thanksgiving and praise to God. And here they offered great sacrifices. Now we know that all of the Old Testament sacrifices, God didn't care about the animals being sacrificed. He cared about the, 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 the symbol that it would point to. It would point to Jesus Christ, the once for all, all-time sacrifice, once for all. You see, the, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they all point to Jesus. And even these Jews here would have even Isaiah, which would point to the suffering servant who would die for our sins and whom he would bear our transgressions. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has placed the iniquity of us all upon him. They had enough truth to see and that foreshadowed sacrifice that would come in the person of God the Son taking on human flesh. And so they offered great sacrifices, and we ought to be thinking about the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We ought to be, our worship should be immersed in what Jesus Christ has done for us. If we are not thinking of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us on the cross in our worship time, we are missing it. We are missing it. We should be thinking about what Jesus did for us, and that should bring us great joy. That should bring us great joy. When you think about that God took on human flesh, that he loved us so much, 
that he came and bore our sins in his body on the cross. He paid the full penalty. It is finished. When you think about that and you think about how sinful we are and how, how much we've fallen, how greatly we've fallen, and you think about God graciously for no reason from our side, but from his side, dying for our sins and then raising from the dead. Wow, that brings joy. That brings joy that our sins are forgiven. We're, we're pardoned. We're redeemed. Uh, we're those uh, whom sin is not the issue anymore eternally. We are, we're going to be glorified. We're going to be with the Lord forever. And now we're being set apart and made like Jesus because we have been declared right with Jesus through his blood on the cross, right with God. And so we have this tremendous reality. So that should be part of our worship service. You know, it should be organized, should be filled with songs and praise to God, but it should also be the sacrifice, pointing to that sacrifice, and there should be joy. And notice the joy was heard uh, afar. They were rejoicing. They were rejoicing in what uh, those sacrifices pointed to. Great sacrifice. Rejoice because God had given them great joy. You know, when you're thinking about the Lord Jesus, you're going to have joy. God's going to give you great joy. When you're thinking about yourself and all your problems, no great joy there, Okay. You, you give those over to the Lord. You cast those cares upon a loving God who loves you. You humble yourself, and he's going to bless you with joy, the joy of the Lord, which is, Nehemiah said, which is our strength, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And so then we come to our passage now where we have the, the, the second to the last of principles that we see from this passage about our corporate worship. And here, I believe we're going to see that our worship service will include worshipful offering. It's going to include that. We're going to be driven by joy to give to those who are bringing about this so that God is glorified, as God has prescribed it, as we're going to see. And it says here in our passage, on that day, verse 44, our passage begins, uh, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, for the, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For, notice this, and we'll see it in a minute, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. There was a great joy of all in Judah there because of those who served in the worship of God. There was a great joy. They recognized there were those who were gifted and placed by God in certain positions to bring about the singing, the worship, and we'll see the word of God. And they rejoiced over that, and they wanted them to be provided for as per God's provision in his word. And they rejoiced to do it. This is part of our worship. This is why we have an offering during our worship time. This is why we do so. It is part of worship of the Lord to provide for the needs of those serving him and the needs of the body of Christ. And we see that principle here. He says, on that day, and again, what day is that? The dedication of the wall. On that day, he says here, men were appointed over the chambers. Okay, so we have this, uh, this, this portion here over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, the... T- and the tithes to gather them into them from the fields of the cities, portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. Now, back then, unlike our time, yes, they had money, they had gold and silver, but primarily their wealth was measured in their flocks and their crops. Primarily, you know, we primarily when we give, it's a check or it's a it's an Internet contribution or it's money, whatever it is. That's primarily what we do. We don't, you know, <coughs> we certainly might give a portion of what our fig tree is brought forth or whatever it might be for people to have. But we primarily give that. way. But here 
they gave of 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 their 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 crops and their goods. We see that. Look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 37. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 37, because we see this principle here. Back in this portion, they were saying, hey, we're no longer going to neglect the house of God. They're confessing that, their sin, they're not going to do it. And they say, here's what we're going to do. But notice what they do. Nehemiah 10, 37. We will also bring the first of our dough... That's not money, by the way. <laughs> we could be, for us, the first of our dough. We could say it that way, right? Um, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are, to re- are they who are to receive the tithes in all the rural towns. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites shall receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring them up, up the tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the, of the storehouse. Again, they're, they're bringing these things to the storehouses, right? It's not cash. It's not money. It's those, those things. It's the, the crops. It's those things that they have in abundance. And he says here, For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, the new wine, the oil, to the chambers. And there are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. We keep seeing that, don't we? And thus we will not neglect the house of our God. So then, these are the tithes and offerings, uh, primarily uh, of dough, fruit, every tree of grain and wine and oil. And they needed to be collected. Evidently, they were offering that, yes, I want to give that. I, I want to give that freely. And so they had to appoint people to go collect those things from the towns. And that's what they're talking about here. During this worship service, they're like, appoint those people. They're so joyful. Appoint them to go receive the tithes. To go receive the tithes. We see that, again, on that day, back in verse 44, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores. That's where they store all the contributions, right? Uh, the contributions for the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them from the fields, of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and leaders. These were the tithes and offerings that supported those who were ministering in the worship of the Lord in the temple. The tithes and offerings for the priests and Levi's. They were in charge, Levi's. They were in charge of the worship. And we'll see also there was, uh, those who were singers. They were Levites. There were those teaching. Levites were teaching. There was the gatekeepers. There was a store watch. The people watching the stores gathering that. And so then, notice why they were to do this. Notice why they were to appoint, they appointed them. Notice why. Why did they appoint these people? End of verse uh, 44. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. They rejoiced. They had joy because these priests and Levites were serving the living God. And everything that we saw through the uh, the word, as we'll see later on, the word being brought forth through the Levites, as we saw earlier in chapter 8, and we'll see today, uh, through uh, the Levites, the singers, the skilled people, all that, those who are serving and gathering things up, all that, they rejoiced. They praised the Lord for that. And so they desired to have what God had ordained be brought forth. And so they appointed it to be done. They appointed it to be done. It's part of the worship service, part of their worship. And that's part of our worship. Now, it's different now. For us, it's different. We, got, uh, we give over the Internet. Uh, we give maybe a check or whatever it might be. But we need to give with a heart that is worshiping the Lord. 
that is giving back those things first, understanding that those things will be provided for those who are serving. There'll be provision for them. There'll also be for those who are in need. We understand it. We rejoice over that. If you're in a church and those who are running the church are, are, are worshiping God rightly and the word is going forth, you should be thankful for that and want them to be provided for. You'll see that. There should be a joy in that. Now, here in this church, I've always been blessed. We've always been blessed because this church is generous. This church is gracious. God has been gracious through. We've always been provided for. And I thank God for that. I praise him for that. And we see this principle in the, in the, in the New Testament, this principle that those who serve the Lord full-time in ministry should be provided for, should be provided for through the ministry, through the people. Take a look at, uh, take a look at uh, second, well, actually, take a look at first Corinthians, or no, excuse me, second Corinthians chapter nine to start with. Because I want to show before this principle about it being that there should be joy. They, these, they rejoiced. They rejoiced over joy and they wanted to give. And I want to look at that first. And we've been going through Second Corinthians on Wednesday nights. And we've seen this passage. But this shows us the heart attitude that is behind our giving, which we see here in the people here. And, I'll, and then we'll get to those other principles in a minute. Second Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Now the context is giving, by the way. That's the context. Let each one do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And boy, these these uh, people were cheerful. They were rejoicing, right? They're rejoicing. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Say, hey, you know, if you're giving with the right heart, God's going to supply to give more. Now, it's not a give to get or a give to give. It is a give that God would supply. Notice what he says here for even more praise and honor for him. He says, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's God, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched, overflowing. Uh, we saw that in everything for all liberality. He's going to bring about that you can even be more, more overflowing in your giving. Okay, He says here, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You see, with the right heart, you should be praising God. That's what should be behind our giving. And he says here, thanksgiving to God. Uh, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's beyond words. Thanks be to God. It's the same heart attitude in which God gave his son that we should have when we give back to him, just free and from a joyful, gracious heart. So then they were rejoicing over those who served for Judah rejoiced back in the end of verse 44 in chapter 12 of Nehemiah. These are those who served. And then notice there's an explanation about their serving. Verse 45, for they, that's the priests and Levites, uh, those are those who served that they were rejoicing over were prompted to give to, right? What God had ordained. 
For they performed the worship of their God and service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and his son Solomon. These are those who were performing the, the ministry of worship, singing and, and serving, right? That's who they were. And they were the ones who were to receive this, these offerings. They were to receive the tithes and offerings gathered by men that were appointed, these who performed the worship of their God in service of purification, uh, together with the singers and gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son. We saw that earlier. We saw that David had laid forth uh, commands for how uh, the, the, the God's people were to worship. And we see that in here. It was, of course, with that command. And we saw back in chapter 36, chapter 36, chapter 12, verse 36, concerning the choir procession in the last phrase, second to last phrase, with the musical instruments, verse 36, of David, the man of God. And David is mentioned six times in chapter 12, four of those in direct reference to worship. And two of those times we see he's called the man of God. And so here we have the man of God who prescribed, verse 24, division by division. Who gives praise and thanks. The musical instruments of David, verse 36. And we have in our passage, for in the days of David, verse 46 now, let's go to verse 46. Days of David and Asap. Uh, in ancient times, there were leaders of singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So the way the flow in this passage is, is they appointed people to give these gifts that God had ordained or given to those who were serving in the context of worship. And he's going to say, for back in David's time, they had singers. And they're going to say, even in Zerubbabel's time, that's when they first came out of their exile, up to Nehemiah, they did this. And so they're saying, this is part of their worship. This is part of their worship. And we didn't have time, and we looked at it partially the last few times, but in First Chronicles 25 and 26, we see uh, the prescription of worship that David uh, shares. We see that in that portion. That's most likely where this comes from. And so we have an expl- explanation in verse 46 uh, about those, uh, those, 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 uh, those who praise and, 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 and uh, serve the Lord in accordance with the command of David. It says here, verse 46, For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns with thanksgiving to God. And now he speaks of it, like I mentioned, from the beginning of the exile to up to Nehemiah. Verse 47, And so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was the governor. He should have been king, but he was under the, the, the under 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 the uh, those who had let him go from from Babylon. He'd been able to come back to build the the the, the te- foundation of the temple. That's the very beginning, the first release back when they came back from exile. Then he says here, the days of uh, from the days of also all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. That's up to present gave the portions due the singers, this is the middle of 47, and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. So you got the Levites in general setting apart for the Levites and then they set apart within that a portion for the priests, the sons of Aaron. They were, you have the Levitical priests, you have the Levites and you have the priests which were inside that group, the sons of of Aaron. So they were given these contributions and then they set apart to give to the priests within that. So here we have 
uh, those who served in the worship of God in different roles were to receive portions due as each day required. Portions due, literally, as each day required. We see that here in verse 47. And it was on that day that they were appointed over the whole contribution system, verse 44, for tithes and offerings. Uh, and, And it's the same thing that had been done from David up through Nehemiah. And it was done because of joy for all Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. You see, the reality is God has ordained that those who serve him in this manner are to be taken care of, to be compensated, to be taken care of. He ordained that in the Old Testament, and we see this principle in the New Testament. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. It's interesting because he's going to say, let each man bear his own burden, as though you should take care of yourself. But then he's going to say, in bearing your own burden, you should provide for those who are teaching you. Very interesting. Uh, Galatians 6, verse 6, and I just paraphrase verse 5, and then let's take a look at verse 6. Galatians 6, verse 6, And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. That's pretty plain. I don't need to explain that. That's just straightforward. just says what should be done. And then he's going to give a principle, that if you're chintzy, you're going to reap chintzy. And you may be reaping from the flesh, because you're in the flesh rather than in the spirit. Notice what he says here. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall reap from the flesh corruption. From the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit shall from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have a principle there. Those who are taught, should, you should share all good things with those who teach you, right? That's what it says. Then look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And here, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about the rights that he has as an apostle um, in the context. But these aren't rights that Paul puts his foot down for and says, I need this. We see in other places where Paul is talking about how he could be provided for. We see when he came to the Thessalonians, he chose not to receive money from them so he wouldn't stumble them because they were a new church and they also had a problem with work. So he showed them by example his working. But there's a principle in general. But that's in the context of wisdom, not stumbling those who might be stumbled. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Or do Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. He's going to take an Old Testament principle, which we see even in our giving here, in the Old Testament, the giving there, he's going to apply it to the New Testament here. Apply it to the New Testament. He says here, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we should reap material things from you? He's saying that those who 
share the gospel full time in this context have a right to gain from the gospel, from that ministry. He's saying they have a right. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5. Now in 1 Timothy 5, he's talking about widows who are widows indeed and how they are to be provided financially by the church. It's financial provision he's talking about for those who are widows indeed. Now, if they're not widows indeed, the family should take care of them, right? If they're not godly, they're going to need to get somewhere else. But if you've trusted the Lord, you're a widow, you've you've, you've followed him, God's going to take care of you. Don't worry. God's going to take care of you. And so in that context of how widows should be provided for, he moves to speak of the provision for those who preach and teach. Look at verse 17, 517, 1 Timothy. Let elders who rule well, this is right after saying the widows indeed should be compensated. Let elders who rule well, that means to stand before, be considered worthy of a double honor. That's double, double pay. That's how I read it. Um, he says here, um, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Okay? For the scripture says, and this is what Paul quoted from the Old Testament, for you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and he quoted it in 1 Corinthians in the context of provision for those serving in ministry. And then he quotes Luke, the labor is worthy of his wages. So, and I mentioned before, we've been blessed. This congregation has always provided abundantly and supplied us with full-time preach and teach, and I'm thankful for God's provision. I'm thankful for God's provision. But I do hear of churches where the pastors are struggling and not being provided for, and it breaks my heart because that's wrong. That's wrong, okay? The, the, the church should be focused on giving to supply the needs of those who are bringing forth this worship of God in the context of his word. It is a biblical principle. It should be part of our worship. So then we see our worship should be immersed not only in all the things we've seen before, but in the context of a rejoicing heart that wants to give for the provision of the body of Christ in that worship. And then look at our last principle here. Uh, the worship service will have convicting preaching from the word. This preaching which elicits a, res- a righteous response. Indeed, on that day the word was read and the people were convicted and responded in obedience in relationship to foreigners, as we'll see. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, back in Nehemiah. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. On that day. Again, these are these things. On that day, Nehemiah wants to make sure that you know this happened on that day. He could have just been saying these things, but you might get distracted. Think it was some other time. He's saying, on this day, on this day, on this day, this happened. This happened. He says, on that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Now, he doesn't explain who they are, and he doesn't even talk very much about the reading of the book, which we're going to see happened back in chapter 8 uh, at a different time. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses. Now, the book of Moses would be the law. We have the Pentateuch that Moses brought forth. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? We have those that, that five books initially, right? There's certainly the prophets, and there's also the wisdom uh, writings. But here they read from the book of Moses. They read from the book of Moses on that day. Now, who is the they? He doesn't say who the they are. He's assuming that after studying this book and reading through it, we know who the they are. Because notice, on that day, they read aloud the book of Moses in the hearing of what? The people. 
So the people are not the they. The people are not the they. The they, it implies, are Levites and priests. That's what it implies. And that's what happened. It implies that this is part of worship. It is part of worship. On that day, and it's the very final thing we see, it is the final thing we see in this worship service, is the reading of the Word of God. Is the reading of the Word of God. He says here, on that day, they read uh, the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Now turn back to chapter 8, because I think we gain a good insight back there about what this reading would have been like. Because it talks about the word being read by Ezra, and then it talks about the word being read by the Levites, but then it goes into an explanation. That helps us understand what I believe is happening here. And that's why I believe he just says they. That we assume we understand it's what we've seen before through the Levites. <coughs> Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 7. And let's go to the middle of that verse. And the Levites explained the law to the people why the people remained in place, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. This is so important. It is not simply a Catholic reading of the word, blah, 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 right? There was an explanation to hearts that were receptive and right with the Lord. There was an explanation. And if you were with us back in chapter 8, you'll remember that verse 7, the end of it, is basically a summary of the details that happen in verse 8. The details are verse 8, the first 7 is the summary. And it's my belief that the reading of the word aloud, book of Moses, and the hearing of the people is like what we see here in chapter 8. I believe it's just like this. It is the way they should did it before. It's the way we see them when they came together. And so here we see that the Levites explained, verse 7, the law. That's verse 7. Then in verse 8, this is now explaining how they explained. Okay? He says here, and they read from the book. That's you got to get it out, right? From the law of God translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, that term translates probably not the best translation there, as we'll see. Um, but here we see they were explaining. And that word, if you were with us in chapter 8, that, uh, that word explaining meant to bring about understanding. It was the same cognate word of all who could hear with understanding. They were bringing about understanding. They were explaining to bring about understanding, to cause to understand. It's in a Hifel form, to cause, to understand. The word in Hebrew, bin, to discern, to understand. We get it, right? We get it. Thus the Levites, what they did in verse 8 was summarized in the end of verse 7. They caused the people to understand the law while they remained in place. That's really the summary. And how did they do that? How did they do that? We have the word, notice we have the word being read, verse 8, and we have this word uh, in this verse, verse 8. They read from the book of law, translating. Now, that's not the best translation, by the way. The word really means to be distinctly declared to give a sense that one might understand. They read distinctly declaring, not translating like you would translate a language. They distinctly declare that you would understand. It's that word we see here. And so the word was being read distinctly declared to give the sense that one would understand. And this is what teachers and godly teachers are to be doing. Uh, this word, translated translating, uh, means to be distinctly declared. It means to pierce 
or to, to clarify, to make clear, to make clear. Now, obviously, if I'm translating something, I'm making it clear. But here, this is about making it clear in which they already understood it, the, the language. They weren't changing languages. So you could say verse 8 this way. And they read from the book of the law, distinctly declaring in a stinging fashion. And then notice, middle of verse 8, the, the, the result or the goal. To give a sense, in a sense, so that they understood the reading. To give a sense so that they understood the reading. It's one thing to read, but it's another thing to be taught so that you would understand what is being read. And the Levites were the ones who were doing that. The word to give sense means to put in place insight. It's the same word that Eve thought about. She thought that if she went the other way, her own way, that Satan was tempting her, she would be made wise. She would gain insight. She thought that. But here, this is in a righteous way, where the word is being declared distinctly in a stinging fashion that they would understand what is being read. That's the ultimate goal. It's not just simply to read the word. It's that you would understand. It's that I would understand. And that with that understanding, then we would respond. But it needs to come in a stinging fashion. It needs to open us up. You see it. Is this not what the Lord Jesus did? Luke chapter 24, verse 27. I'll read this to, read this to you. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained... He explained to them the things concerning himself in scriptures. Jesus could have just simply read the word. And there's nothing wrong with reading the word, by the way. We should give attention to the public reading the word. But there is also teaching. There's explanation. Luke 24, 32. This is when he had risen from the dead, like the last verse I just shared, the third day. And they said to one another, the people that he had spoken to, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us to the road, while he was explaining the scriptures. To us, explain the scriptures to us. We know for the heart that's willing to receive, that's not hardened. Don't harden your heart. The heart that's willing to receive, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that, right? For those who aren't hardened, right? Hardened, chapter 3 of Hebrews, those who aren't hardened, let the word's going to cut through, right? It's going to cut through. And so then, uh, this is what we call expounding the word. Reading the word in a distinct way that places the hearer and gives them, puts them wisdom in them that they might understand. That's what expository preaching is. Now that word has been hijacked by the reforms, guys. Uh, this is really what it is. This is what it means. This is what it means. So then, uh, notice back in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, verse 12. Verse 12, notice this. And the people went away to eat and drink and send portions to celebrate the great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Isn't that great? That is great. So then the process which God's teachers teach is through the word being declared in a distinct fashion that it would place wisdom so that those who hear would understand. And the Jews got it and they responded. You see, if you're a believer and you're in a typical evangelical church these days, uh, even some Baptist churches where the sermons are 25 to 30 minutes, this is not going to happen there. It's not going to happen that time. It can't happen. You can't have it expounded upon in that little amount of time. Uh, there needs to be a distinct declaration that would place wisdom in the heart of those who hear that they might understand. They might understand. You see, movie clips and verses here and there that are true, that's why people go, oh, it's a good church. I heard a verse. Yeah, you heard the verse, but was it expounded upon? Did, did, were you taught? 
right? Movie clips, verses here and there, baby doctrine week after week, pastors sitting on a chair dialoguing with people. That's not the expounding of the word of God to the receptive heart. I posit to you the opposite is happening in a lot of these churches, and if you're comfortable with that type of teaching, then maybe you are of those who cannot endure sound doctrine but are looking to have your ears tickled by teachers according to your own desires, and you've turned away from the truth to miss, and that's a shame, and I encourage you to confess and turn to the Lord right now that she might be built up rather than torn down through your own desires. So then... We have, I believe, them teaching the word of God. And we see a principle for this throughout the Old Testament. We see a principle here in Nehemiah chapter 8, which I believe applies to chapter 13. And in the New Testament, we have plenty of passages that tell us how we should be bringing forth the word of God. Let me share a couple, and we'll finish up here. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles... Second, prophets, that's foundational, it's already been founded. And third, teachers, primary gifting in the, in the church right now is teaching. Teaching for the building up of the body of Christ, right, to the works of service. We know that those uh, you're, who have charge over you, you're to appreciate them diligently, who give you instruction, First Thessalonians 5. Uh, we know from Ephesians 4, the ladies are going through this, that we have pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We have pastors, teachers that teach the word of God. First Timothy chapter 4, 13, Paul says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. That's what you need to be doing, Timothy, until I get there. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 4, this solemn charge in the presence of God and his angels, very serious. After Paul has explained about the bad guys who are getting increasing and getting worse, but you, Timothy, don't go that way. Remember what you were taught from your, from your grandma and, and from your mother, the, that, the, which is able to bring salvation. Remember the wisdom, the truth, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And he goes on to share about the word of God. And then from there, he says in chapter 4, of Second Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. If your pastor is not doing that, he is sinning. That's what God calls solemnly for us to do. And he says here, for a time will come, the time will come when they will not endure sound out. They can't hear it, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate. That means you go to the church you want, accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, that's the word of God, and listen to myth or stories. Hebrews chapter 13, 7, remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, right? It's all throughout. When Jesus was restoring Peter, how did he restore Peter? Was it all about love? It was about obedience. If you love me, Peter, you're going to obey me. You're going to share my word with my sheep. You're going to feed my sheep. That's what that word means. Feed, shepherd, feed. When it says ten, that means feed. If you love the Lord and you're in a position to teach, feed God's sheep. Feed God's sheep. So then, I believe we have on that day, back in Nehemiah 13, the word read aloud, they implying the Levites, 
And how did they do it back in chapter 8? They read it, they explained it, they expounded on it. And the people got it. The people got it, as we see in the hearing of the people. And notice what happens. Notice what happens. As we come together to worship, the finale should be our hearing the word of God and responding to the word of God as we come together. Look at what happens. And there was found written in it, that's the the book of Moses, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. I love it how, how he says that. Nehemiah says, however, it was turned to a blessing, right? He doesn't, just, he doesn't just read the passage. He says, this is, this is what was found, and this is how they got it. This is how they understood it. So it came about, when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. They responded to the word of God. That's the last part of our worship services. We respond to the word of God. We respond to it. Here we have the word of God read, I believe, back like in chapter 8. There's a precedent for that through the Levites. And they found in that that no Ammonite Moabite shall enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, God turned the curse into a blessing. Evidently, they were reading Deuteronomy and possibly Numbers 24 and 20, 21 through 24. And let's take a look at Deuteronomy 23. Turn to Deuteronomy 23. Now, we don't have time to go through Numbers 22 through 24. That's a long portion about Balaam and Balak and all that stuff and the donkey. And you can read that and the angel of the Lord and all that. It's, it's quite, quite uh, uh, instructive. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. This is probably what they were reading. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Hey, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? None of, the, none, of, none of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you, that's Israel, with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord... Your God loves you. Isn't that great? You know, he takes what's bad and turns it good, by the way, because he loves them. He loved Israel, and he did it for them. And then notice, this is just a little extra, extra bonus, bonus verse here. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity in your days. Don't ever seek the peace of the world or their prosperity. Don't be watching the shows where it says, you take this drug, you'll have peace. It's the world. And No, don't do that. Don't seek their peace. Don't seek those, see those shows where the world's saying, hey, this is how you can make money. You need more money, you need more money, you need more money. Don't do it. Don't seek their peace or their prosperity. And that's a side note, okay? But this is probably the passage they were reading. And because of the actions of the Ammonites and Moabites, Israel was commanded not to allow them to enter the assembly. Now, the Ammonites and Moabites were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And these nations, apart from a few who came to know the Lord by faith, such as Rahab and Ruth. They hated the Lord, Psalm 83, and they always desired to destroy Israel. They hate the Lord. You can read that in Psalm 83. Now, when Israel had come out of Egypt, after they had wandered, they were coming uh, into the land of Canaan, coming closer, and they had to pass through the land of Ammon and Moab. Now, when they came to Ammon, they tried to pass through, but Sihon, the king of the Amorites, would not let them do that, and he didn't give them food or water. 
Okay? The Lord made it clear in Deuteronomy 2, you can read this in your own time, that the Israelites were not to, were not to, uh, uh, were not going to be given uh, the Ammonites into their hands. They were not going to, not going to overthrow them because God had given the sons of Lot as a possession. Okay? Then Deuteronomy 2.19, so Moses sent messengers to Sion, that's the Amorite king, to let the Israelites pass through peacefully. Just sell them food and give them water. Okay? And Deuteronomy 2.27-28, but Sihon came out for battle, and yet the Lord delivered Israel and defeated him and his people. 2, uh, 32 and 33. So we know that God was being gracious through Israel, going to let them have their land, and they just needed food and water, but they didn't give it to him. They attacked him, and God then threw, overthrew them. Now, the Moabite guy, Balak, he saw this, that they got overthrown. And he's fearful. So he hires this Balaam guy, this, uh, this prophet for hire. And we see that in Numbers 22. Balak, the king of Moab, was fearful of the Israelites because of what they did to the Amorites. And he hired Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. You can read about that. Okay? And we know that Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was a wicked, uh, wicked man. Uh, and his madness was restrained when the Lord had his donkey speak back to him, restrained the madness of the prophet, Second uh, Peter chapter 2. And we see in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua that God caused Balaam to bless Israel rather than to curse. And I'll read this for you. This would be uh, Joshua 24.10. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel and sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, for I delivered you from his hand. So then, we have this passage that they were reading. So it came about that when they heard from the law, the law excluded all foreigners from Israel, and it explains why. It explains why. Because they didn't give him water, uh, and they hired ba- Balaam to curse, but God brought that into a blessing. Then what did they do? What did these Jews do? What did they do? So they excluded all foreigners from the land. They acted on it. It's one thing to go, yeah, amen, amen, and then walk out and go do what's wrong. It's another thing to say amen and do it. They were rejoicing over the word and the Lord and praising him. They heard this and they responded to the word of God. And that's how this portion uh, ends here. And the next portion in Nehemiah moves to a recounting of something earlier, which reveals something later on, which is going bad. And that's the end of the book. Because we need to keep diligently watching out for bad things to come back in, bad habits to sneak back in. They're going right now. They're working. They're following the Lord. They're doing what's right. And the Word's working in them. But we've got to be diligent. So then we have the response to the Word of God based on a conviction. This is the last principle we see. In our worship service, we should have the word of God proclaimed, expounded, brought forth, that there would be understanding, and, and when you would know what it's about, and you would respond and do what is right. And that's our last principle here for how our worship service should be, and I believe this is how it should come together and close. We see this principle here in Nehemiah. So then... Our worship service, I believe that worship service doesn't have the word of God isn't a good, isn't God's worship service. 
we see that it's God's word that works in our hearts and makes us like him and causes them to worship him. So then, from our study in chapter 12, from the beginning up to the beginning of chapter 13, we've gained insight as a body on how we are to worship the Lord corporately. And we've seen that we must have leadership and skillful servants. Uh, we've seen the worship must be planned and pure. We've seen it needs to be organized and led by those to make sure it's immersed in glorifying music and singing. And we've seen that Jesus Christ and his sacrifice must be primary, and that will bring us great joy. And we've seen it should include worshipful offering that provides for those who are serving in the worship itself. And also that there should be the preaching, the preaching of the convicting word and thus a response by the people of God. That's what I see here in Nehemiah. And I pray that we won't forget these principles as we continue to move forward here in this body, east and west, that we will remember what we've learned and apply it as God has illumined our hearts to see how we are together to worship him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed how we are to come before you, and I praise you that it just brings joy. It brings joy to see what you have done through your son Jesus Christ for us. And Lord, help us as a body to worship you in this manner, in the context of your spirit and truth, to praise you, to sing your praises, to sing unto you, to hear your word and respond, to to give back to you what is yours, Lord God, for your body, Lord God. And, and Lord, we just thank you for what we've seen. Lord, help us now to respond like these uh, in Nehemiah's day, that we would do what is right in response to your word, that you would have your way. And may our worship always be your way and not our way, Lord God. For you're our God and we are your people. So we pray this in your precious name. Amen.